Uh, and as we begin today, let me just start here. There are phrases, there are things that we say that are just, well, they're strange and they don't make a lot of sense. Let me give you an example. You go to a, a musical, you go to a play, and what is it that people say to the performers right before they go on stage? What do they say? Break a leg. It's like, that's supposed to mean do a good job. I don't get it. <laughs> Maybe you get it, I don't understand it. There are things we say that just don't make a lot of sense. Uh, back in the day when I was younger, I worked in the family business as a water well driller. And uh, during uh, the summer, like right now, it was hot. And so you'd be out there working hard, sweating like crazy. And we would say this thing, man, I'm sweating like a pig. Now I've been around some pigs. They're not really all that sweaty. So I don't know what's up with this phrase. Uh, not to be morbid, here's one. Uh, people say, well, he kicked the bucket, which means he died. And again, I have no idea what a person dying has to do with buckets, but it's just one of the things that we say. I've heard people say, man, I slept like a baby last night. And I'm thinking, have you ever met a baby? Because I've had five babies in my house, and unless you mean waking up every two hours and screaming your head off, I don't think you slept like a baby. And then uh, one last one, uh, when it's raining really hard, what do people say? It's raining, what? Cats and dogs. So at some point in the history of the English language, it was pouring rain and somebody was like, wow. It's raining cats and dogs out there. And somebody else is like, that's really good. Wow, cats and dogs, that really captures the downpour. You should say that more often. And it caught on. And now we all say it. I don't get it. There are just things that people say that are just strange. They don't make sense. And, you know, Christians do this. Christians, we have things that we say that at least uh, people who don't attend church and, and you know, don't... Uh, uh, read the Bible all the time, that it's just kind of like, I don't understand what you're saying. Okay, so I had friends in high school. They were from the, one of the Baptist churches in town. And they would say this thing to people at our school. They'd be like, hey, have you been born again? And people would be like, what are you talking about? Like, that's just such a weird thing to say. But the deal is, actually, today, as we dive into the sermon, this phrase born again, that's actually what I wanna talk about. Because the encounter with Jesus that we're gonna be exploring today, uh, it's, it comes from the Gospel of John. And uh, in this uh, encounter with Jesus, Jesus actually uses the phrase born again. So you heard it here first, it wasn't the Baptists who invented this phrase, it was actually Jesus. And so this idea of being born again uh, it, it's, it's really actually foundational to the Christian faith. So what does it mean? Why does it matter? And why should you care? That's what we're going to talk about today. And I just think that this could be a powerful conversation for us. Because I know that some of you are, are here or perhaps watching online, and, and really you're exploring faith. You know, you're not so sure about this whole thing yet. You're, you're interested, and maybe it's because, you know, your parents bring you to church, and it's like, well, I have to go, but I'm not really sure that I'm buying into this whole thing yet. So if you're exploring faith, trying to understand what this whole thing is about, and if it's really for you, this idea of being born again, it, it really captures the essence 
of what this whole thing is about. And so I just think that today, hopefully, you'll get a very clear explanation of what the Christian faith is all about at its core. And others of you, you're not really exploring faith. You've been in church your entire life. And yet, it's possible to be in church your whole life and to miss something huge. And I think it's this idea of being born again. Others of you would say, uh, yeah, I'm a believer, uh, but I'm just, I'm traveling through a season in my faith that's just kind of stale. It's just kind of dry. And my hope for you as we talk about what it means to be born again and what exactly God accomplished through this, that you might feel something in your heart sort of reawaken toward God and you might, you might feel yourself move toward him. And so no matter who you are, I think there's something important and powerful for you today as we talk about this idea of being born again. So uh, we're gonna be looking at four different questions about being born again. And the first question is simply this, uh, who needs it? In other words, like who needs to be born again? So let's jump in. Like I said, John's gospel, uh, chapter three is where this story takes place. So here we go. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the ruling council. So John, the author of this biography of Jesus' life, he introduces us to this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the guy who's going to have this encounter with Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is a very impressive individual. And we get some indications of this just from how John describes him. First off, he says, okay, this guy was a Pharisee. Now, if you've been in church a lot, you've heard a lot of sermons, you probably think of Pharisees as the bad guys. But if you were a first century Jew, I don't think you would have thought that. In fact, the Pharisees were very much the good guys because of anybody in ancient Israel, the Pharisees were the most devoted, the most passionate about their faith. They were all in. Their whole deal was, if we can follow God closely enough, then he will bless our nation once again. And so to be a Pharisee in that culture would have been to be viewed, considered as a very moral person. So Nicodemus, he was impressive. He was, first off, he was very moral. Secondly, John tells us that he was part of the Jewish ruling council. Sometimes in the scriptures, this is called the Sanhedrin. This was like the highest authority in Jewish society. You might think of it like our uh, Supreme Court, except for all the decisions that they were making, these legal decisions were based on the Jewish scriptures. So this is like the highest authority in Jewish culture. So this guy, Nicodemus, I mean, he's a big deal. He's elite. He's probably very wealthy. He has, I guess the word for it is he has status. This guy is a big deal. Now, something else about the council, the Sanhedrin, is uh, not just anybody got invited to be a part of this thing. I mean, you had to have major league Bible knowledge to be part of this because they were making Supreme Court level decisions and their law was the Hebrew scriptures. 
So like, if you grew up going to Awana and memorized a few verses, you know, that thing where you wear the vest and the little badges, and if you're going like, these people are crazy, just roll with it right now. Some of us grew up with this. Okay, if you're thinking you memorized a lot of verses, these guys, most of them, they memorized like the first five books of the Old Testament, all of it, and many of them even beyond that. And so this guy, Nicodemus, he's got major league, I'm talking like jeopardy winning level Bible knowledge, okay? So this guy is incredibly impressive. And uh, John gives us a little more in the next verse where he says, he, that's Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So this guy, Nicodemus, he shows up. He wants a conversation with Jesus. He comes at night. I think he's doing it secretly. We'll, we'll return to that a little later. But, but look at how he addresses Jesus. He calls him rabbi. It's a respectful title. And he says, look, we know, I understand that, you, that God is with you. And this is different than a lot of the interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Because usually they're accusing him, they're testing him, they wanna argue with him. But Nicodemus is respectful. And he appears to be open and curious to who Jesus is and what he has to say. And so not only is this guy incredibly impressive in his morality and his status and his Bible knowledge, I would say he's, he's also one of the good ones. I think he's actually a good guy. Now, if there was ever somebody that God would be impressed with, that God would go, okay, now this guy, okay, Nicodemus, now this guy, have you seen this guy? If there was ever somebody that, that would be able to win God's approval, that would sort of be on God's good list, I'm going, it's gotta be this guy. It, it, Nicodemus is incredibly impressive. And he essentially shows up to Jesus and says, look, I can see that you're special. I can see that God is with you. Now, would you just help me out, Jesus? Who exactly are you? This seems to be the question that he's asking. And so here's how Jesus responds. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So there's our phrase, born again. Jesus introduces the idea. No one can see the kingdom unless they're born again. And it's like Nicodemus is going, I can see that you're special. I can see that God is with you. And Jesus goes, actually, you can see nothing. You can't even see the kingdom of God. And this is startling. Because again, this guy's very impressive. He's a really good dude. And it's, it's almost like, I, I think this guy, God would be impressed with him. And Jesus seems to be saying, yeah, you're not even close. You're not even in the right zip code, Nicodemus. Not only have you not entered the kingdom, you can't even see the kingdom. You're not even close. So what's up with this? How can this be? Well, the problem is, as impressive as Nicodemus is, he's got a problem. And it's the same problem that you have. And it's actually the same problem that I have. And the problem is, what throughout the scriptures we call sin. It's this reality that every single one of us misses the mark. We fall short of God's perfection. 
we miss the mark on God's standard. And as impressive as Nicodemus is, he still fails to do what's right. He still does what's wrong, just like all of us. And so Jesus is going, look, this is a bigger deal than you think. You're not even close. And so I guess the idea here is no matter how impressive, how good a person is, who needs to be born again? Well, every single one of us. Maybe the clearest way to put it is just this. Look, you must be born again. I mean, I line my life up against Nicodemus, and I'm going, yeah, yeah, he's got me. And if Nicodemus isn't even in the same ballpark, I'm definitely not. And neither are you. So who needs to be born again? All of us. You must be born again. We have this tendency to think that really all we need is just like incremental improvement. We just need to get a little bit better for God to approve of us. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is, no, you're not even in the same ballpark. You must be born again. And there's another way to look at this, too. You can kind of flip it around. Because it's not just that every single one of us must be born again. It's also that every single one of us can be born again. So second phrase is you can be born again. And it doesn't matter how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how far you feel from God. You can be born again. And I believe this because throughout the gospel accounts, throughout these biographies of Jesus' life that we have, the four gospels, you see Jesus repeatedly pursuing the least likely of people, and inviting them to be his followers, inviting them into his kingdom. And so I guess what I would say is it doesn't matter who you are, whether you are a model person or a train wreck of a person, you must be born again, and you can be born again. The deal is Jesus wants you. But, as I've said repeatedly, you must be born again. And at this point, you're going like, okay, I get it. Everybody needs to be. But what exactly is it? What does it mean to be born again? Like, what happens? What is the whole deal? And if you're asking that question, you're not alone. Because so is Nicodemus. He's not really understanding what Jesus is talking about. So this brings us to the second question, which is, what is it? What does it mean to be born again? What is it all about? Nicodemus says, uh, verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. It's like he's going, look, Jesus, I know that you're a great teacher. I can see that God is with you. But did you go to health class? Because this doesn't make any sense. And so here's Jesus responding. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. It's like, oh, water and spirit, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. What is Jesus talking about here? Okay, so uh, there are times when uh, Jesus or other uh, people in the New Testament make references, make allusions that just go right over our heads. And the reason is, we're not first century Jews 
who know our Hebrew Bibles backwards and forwards. And what you have here in this encounter with Jesus is you have a rabbi, a Bible teacher, Jesus, and you have one of the most educated and learned individuals in Israel talking about the Hebrew scriptures at a very high level. So it's no mystery that some of this is you know, right over our heads. But I think what's happening here as Jesus says, look, you gotta be born of water and of spirit. That's what it means to be born again. He's referencing an Old Testament a Hebrew prophet. And it's a prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet in the nation of Israel at a very dark time in their history. So here's a, a painting that shows uh, the Babylonians conquering Jerusalem and then leading a bunch of the Jews off into exile. So what happened was that the Jewish people just repeatedly were unfaithful to God. And they chased after other, other nations' gods. They refused to obey the, the laws that God gave them. And God warned them and warned them and warned them. And eventually, he brought his judgment on them. He, he gave them consequences in the form of the Babylonian Empire. And that's the time period where Ezekiel is a prophet. And so the book of Ezekiel, it's about God's righteous judgment on his people. And it's about this future hope where God would restore his people. And he would return them to life and he would bring uh, peace and uh, life to them once again. And it's this aspect of the book of Ezekiel that I think Jesus is referencing. So let me take you back uh, to the book of Ezekiel. If you wanna follow along, it's chapter 36. And uh, keep in mind, Jesus, again, he says, what, what does it mean to be born again? Well, you have to be born of water and you have to be born of spirit. So here we go. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. It's like God is saying to his people, your unfaithfulness to me, your disobedience, your rebelliousness, it has made you impure. It has made you unclean. But I will sprinkle water on you. I will purify you. I will make you clean once again. And so what does it mean to be born again? Well, it means to be born of water, which I, I believe means a God-given purity. That when you are born again, what happens is God gives you his purity. He washes away the stain of all your sin and all your guilt, and he makes you perfectly clean. It is a gift, and it's also a requirement. Because to be in relationship with an absolutely perfect God, you must be pure. And so when God, uh, when you are born again, God makes you pure so that you can be in relationship with him. And so this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says you must be born of water. But he also says you must be born of spirit. Very next verse in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He's talking about these ancient Israelites. He's describing them as having hearts of stone, dead stone hearts that were un, 
unable to faithfully follow their God. And so it's like God is saying, look, there is a day coming when I will turn you from death into life, and I will make that cold, dead, stone heart into a heart of flesh, and I will make you able to actually faithfully following me. It's like death to life, God's life implanted in you. And so just a second description of what this means is it's God-given life. When you are born again, he brings you from death to life and gives you a new heart, a heart alive to him, a heart that is capable of faithfully following him. He puts his spirit in you. And so this is what Jesus means when he says born of water and born of spirit. And it's important to keep in mind that all this is God's work. We've already seen from Nicodemus and how impressive he was and the fact that he's still not even in the ballpark. That This is all God's doing. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you achieve. God does it. In fact, uh, this phrase, born again, uh, in the original language, there's really two ways to translate it into English. There's born again, and there's also born from above or born of God. Now, John, the the disciple who writes this biography of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John, where we have the story of Nicodemus and Jesus, he's already talked about this idea of being born of God previously in his Gospel. So if you have a physical Bible, just turn one page backward from John 3 to John 1, verse 12. You may recognize this verse. John says, yet to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, there's something here that's just so powerful. It's that when you are born again, you are born into a new family. You become a child of God. You are born of God. You receive a new identity. And so just a third description of what does it mean to be born again? You get a God-given identity. You're born into the family of God. It's not an identity that you can achieve. It's an identity that you can only receive. And it's so powerful that it has the ability to overwrite and override every other identity in your life. Were you abandoned? In Christ, you are chosen. Were you mistreated? In Christ, you are treasured. Were you unloved? In Christ, you are his son, you are his daughter, you are so loved. Were you under the belief, believing the lie that somehow your value, you had to earn it through achievement, through winning, through being noticed? No, in Christ, you simply have this incredible value being the treasured son or daughter of the king. It's not an identity that you can achieve. It's an identity that is received. It's part of what it means to be born again. 
And so when you are born again, when you are born of water and of spirit, what happens? You get a God-given purity. You receive God-given life and you receive God-given identity. It's really unbelievable. It's so powerful. It will revolutionize your life. And yet I know that some of you right now are just going like, that's great, okay? I understand that I, I need to be born again. I understand what it is. Can you help me out? How does it happen? This is the third question. How does it happen? How do you get it? How do you become born again? And again, if you're asking this question, if you're like, I, I just don't understand it, well, neither did Nicodemus. And the dude knew his Bible, and so you're in good company. So here we go, verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can this be? How can this happen? And Jesus kind of chides him. He says to him, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher. How do you not know this? How do you not understand this? And even though Nicodemus is so high level, he's just not understanding what Jesus is saying. And so what happens, once again, is Jesus takes him back into the Hebrew scriptures. Now, I, get, I understand that this can be a little hard to follow because it's like conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus and then backwards and then backwards again. But these are two like premier Bible scholars, if you will, going at it in like this high level conversation. And so to explain to Nicodemus how a person is born again, Jesus takes him back to here, the wilderness. So for context, this is after God raised up Moses, his servant leader, to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, but before he brought them into his land of promise. And in between that space is the wilderness, where God leads them through essentially the desert in what I like to call trust me training. He wants the people of Israel to learn to trust him. So he puts them in an environment where they're entirely dependent on his provision. There's no water in the wilderness. They just have to trust God to provide. Now, if you know the story, you know that the people of Israel really don't do well at trust me training. Just repeatedly, they're, they're complaining, they're whining. They actually ask Moses to take them back to slavery in Egypt. And so it's at one of these low points where the people of Israel are just complaining and whining that the story takes place that Jesus references. So this is all the way back in the book of Numbers, which is way, uh, way back at the beginning of the Old Testament. Here we go, chapter 21. The people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and they, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, the thing is, this isn't exactly accurate because God has provided water. He has provided bread. In fact, every morning it rains bread from the sky. So God is taking care of them, but these people just are unwilling to trust him. They don't want to. It's like, send us back. And this is repeated behavior, and God has had it. He's had enough. And so he punishes his people. And what happens is all these snakes enter into the camp. And I just can't because I hate snakes. But all these snakes come into the camp and it's worse than that 
because the snakes are poisonous snakes and they start biting the people and the people start dying. And so they go to Moses and are like, look, we messed up, okay, we sinned, so we need you to go to God and pray for us to take away these snakes. And uh, I, did I forget to tell you that this story is really strange? Okay, I should have mentioned that earlier. Okay, so, uh, so Moses prays to God and this is how the Lord responds to him. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And right about now you're going, this is so weird. And it is a strange story. So the deal is these people, they, it's like they have the snake venom in them. They're as good as dead. But God instructs Moses to put this snake up, this bronze snake up on a pole so that the people look at the snake, then they are healed and they will live. And you're probably going, why in the world did Jesus reference this story of all stories to talk about how a person can be born again? Well, let's look at what Jesus said to Nicodemus. So this is verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus referencing himself, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. In the same way that the snake was lifted up on a pole, Jesus will be lifted up on a cross. And in the same way that those ancient Israelites had venom in their veins, and if they looked to that snake, they would live, in the same way we have venom in our veins. We have poison in our blood, and that poison is sin. And the sin in our lives is killing us. It's killing us emotionally. It's killing us relationally. It's literally killing us physically. And it's even killing us spiritually. It's created a separation between us and our creator, who is the source of all life. And so we have venom in our veins. And what Jesus is saying is all you have to do is look. All you have to do is believe in my sacrifice on the cross. And I will take that poison from you and I will give you my life. And you will live. And this, my friends, is actually the context for probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. It's a verse that you've heard. The very next verse in this story is John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God gave himself. It's like God became the snake on a pole so that we could live. So this question, how do you become born again? How do you get this God-given purity, this God-given life, this God-given identity? Well, there's only one way, and that is to believe in Christ and him lifted up 
on the cross. That is the only way that you can be born again, by placing your faith in him. And so let me ask you a question that my Baptist friends used to go around asking everybody. Have you been born again? Have you experienced this? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you looked to him? Have you believed in him as the only way for you to be brought from death to life? Have you been born again? It's probably the most important question that I could ask you. And yet I understand that as we talk about this, there's one remaining question that many of us are still asking. And that is, how do you know? How do you know if you actually are born again? How do you know that it's actually taken? You know, like how do you know that you actually are? Well, the answer to that, the best answer I can give, actually comes from the last two verses that we looked at, which both say, if you believe, then you will live. And so when you ask the question, am I really born again? How do I know? My, my response is actually a question. Have you believed? Because if you have believed in Christ, if you have trusted in him, then you can know. I mean know with assurance that you are born again. You can have that assurance. It's really as simple as that. Bottom line, have you believed? Yes, okay, you're born again. But if you're going, okay, just give me a little bit more. Okay, well then let's talk about evidence. Question I would ask is, is there evidence? Because if you go back to this encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus, uh, John doesn't tell us how it wraps up. We don't know if Nicodemus leaves a believer. We don't know if he leaves a skeptic. We don't know if he's somewhere in between. We don't know how that encounter ends. But we do get a glimpse of what happens with Nicodemus because he shows up later in the story. Because as you probably know, what happens is that Sanhedrin that group that Nicodemus was a part of, they condemn Jesus to die. And so they take Jesus and they bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, who has him executed. Jesus is crucified. He is killed. And what happens next in the story, near the end of the gospel, is this guy Joseph. He's called Joseph of Arimathea, who is also a member of the Sanhedrin. He's the secret Jesus follower. He shows up to Pilate and he asks Pilate, for the body of Jesus. And this was kind of a big deal because when the Romans executed somebody, they would just throw the body in a ditch. And what Joseph wants to do is give Jesus a proper burial. And it's who's with Joseph that's important for our story. So in uh, John chapter 19, verse 39, we read this. He, that's Joseph, was accompanying, accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's a lot of aloes. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. First off, I find this incredibly moving. You have two very high-level status dudes who are gently, carefully, intimately wrapping the body of our Savior 
so that he can have a proper burial. It's just, it's a beautiful image. And also, I think that this was an incredibly dangerous move for Nicodemus. I mean, he's part of the group that condemned Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And the first time that he went to see Jesus, it was in secret, and it was at night. I get the sense that he didn't want people to know that he was asking questions. And now he goes publicly to the Roman governor, and he takes part in this deal of giving Jesus a proper burial. I don't know everything that goes on or happened with, with Nicodemus, but I do believe that something changed in him. Something moved, and he seems to have moved toward Jesus. And my point is this. If you're asking the question, am I really born again? Well, first off, have you believed? But secondly, is there evidence? Because when a person is born again, they are always changed. There is always movement. Something changed in Nicodemus, and something will change in you. And Jesus talked about this idea of change and movement back in the encounter with Nicodemus, back in chapter 3. It was in that part when he was talking about being born of water and being born of spirit because he said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Jesus uses this image of wind. And so let's talk about wind for a second. See, the thing with wind is you can't see it. You can only see the evidence of it. You can feel it. You can hear it. You can see the grass blow. You can see the, we, the, the leaves blow, but you can't actually see it. And what's fascinating here is that the word that Jesus used, he's talking about the spirit and he's talking about the wind. Well, in the original language, that's the same word. It's the same word. The word is pneuma. And so I think the idea here is that when God's spirit comes into you, when you are born again, that spirit will blow into your life and it will change you. It will blow things around and you will see the evidence of God's movement in your life. And so let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you said yes to something because you knew that God was asking you to say yes to something. I mean, when's the last time that his wind, his spirit blew into your life and caused change? Or, or maybe right now in your life, you are saying no to something that five years ago you would have said yes to. And the reason that there's this change, the reason that there's this movement is that you are attempting to honor God with your life. I don't, I don't do that anymore. I say no to that, and it's because of God's presence in my life. It's evidence of his spirit blowing into your life. And so the question is, when is the last time that you, in a sense, opened the windows and invited God his spirit to blow into your life and to move things around and to change you and, and, and move you in a different direction? When's the last time that you invited him to do these things? We're talking about evidence of being born again. And so if you want to answer the question, how, how do I know? First off, have you believed? Okay, bottom line, you're born again. Secondly, do you see evidence? 
of God's spirit blowing through your life, changing you and moving you. Well, let me uh, wrap up our time together with with just a, a question. And the question is, what do you believe God was trying to say to you today? I mean, as we talk through the story, we ask these questions about being born again, what is it that God wanted to get your attention with? And so let me just put these four questions on the screen again. Four questions about being born again. Who needs it? I wonder if God was just trying to get your attention to remind you that every one of us needs to be born again and every one of us can be born again. Or or what is it? Did you need to be reminded today that because of Christ you are pure, that that his life is in you, that you have a brand new identity? You don't have to keep living that old way. Or maybe it was this question, how does it happen? How does a person actually become born again? And you're just realizing, I've never done that. And maybe truly it's like, I've been in church my whole life and I have never trusted in Christ alone so that I can be born again. And maybe it's that last one that you've been, you've been doubting, you've been worried, and it's just this assurance that you can have. No, I, I believe, and I trust in Christ. Well, you're born again. Or perhaps it's just a challenge that I need to open the windows up, and I need to invite God to move in my heart again. But I just wonder, what, what is it that God wanted to say to you today through his scriptures? And so I'd love to pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, uh, first off, we're just so grateful for your scriptures. God, you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us truth to guide us, and you have shown us the way that we can be born again. And God, I also recognize that you are pursuing every single one of us in very unique ways. And I just believe that your spirit is moving in each one of us, speaking to each one of us. And God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself that we would be open to what you want to say, to what you want to do. God, that you would move us closer to you, that we might experience your life every day. And so, God, we honor you, we love you, and we just want to focus on you as we move out of this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. We'll see you next time.